Today we have with us Sam Goodner. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm glad to be here. Uh, so Sam is an Ernst & Young Entrepreneur of the Year, uh, 2008? Yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. So today we're going to be talking about Catapult Systems, a company that you built in 1993 and sold in 2013. 20 years later. That's incredible. So tell me, what was the nexus of the idea? Yeah, it was a great run. So the nexus for the idea for Catapult Systems, um, Catapult um, is actually still a, uh, a Microsoft uh, integrator. So it, it makes custom applications for other companies. Um, that was never the intention when we started the company. We wanted to start a software products company, uh, me and my two co-founders, um, but we didn't have any money. And, uh, and so we built a service company as a means of generating cash flow so that we could self-fund different software product ideas that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we did. I mean, it, it really, it was just a means of generating cash. And uh, we took all of that, all of those profits and, and self-funded different product ideas that we had. Well, the first one was a, was a product called Advanced Power Tools and a company called, then a product called PowerDoc, uh, then a product called Inquisit that itself became its own company that we spun out and it had its own successful exit in 2007. But but along the way, we had suddenly built this successful IT services company that was growing not just here in Texas but across the country, and and uh, that became the business that I ran for 20 years. That's fascinating. How did you know when you achieved product market fit? As first-time entrepreneurs, we didn't know anything. Yeah, and I certainly didn't certainly didn't know what you know the right product category fit was at the time. I mean, we were just stumbling our way through you know, running a business and as it grew, you know, trying to keep the wheels on and, and hiring talented people. And, you know, it, none of us had ever run a company before. And so it was, uh, the whole thing was learning experience. Got it. Um, and so we didn't know any of those things at the time. And, and, uh, and you know, and over time you make enough mistakes, you get enough scars and, and suddenly you, you, you learn a thing or two along the way. So as Catapult Systems started launching different products, different services, how did um, the business itself evolve? Because it sounds almost like it was like a holding company of several different businesses. No, originally it was really an IT services firm. And when we first started, this was the crazy time of the 1990s. This was the, uh, I mean, technology was booming. The internet was just happening. Then it was the late 90s and the internet was booming. Then it was all about Y2K. And this was driving... Uh, uh, you know, just we were falling over business, you know, despite ourselves. Um, if if you had back then the the right talent to build these kinds of applications, customers were, were lining up to to employ your your services. Um, the real the real focal point for us happened actually in the middle of. There's nothing like a good crisis to 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 teach you some lessons and get you to focus. And so. Um, for those of you who were around back then, we had this thing called the dot-com boom and then the dot-com bust, which happened in, in, in the year 2000, about 2000 or 2003. Uh, and it was almost the end of our company. We, we barely made it through. Um, and frankly, most of our competitors didn't. Um, but it was in the middle of that crisis in 2001 that we had to do some real soul-searching and decide, okay, how do we differentiate ourselves from everybody else out there? What is our what is our special sauce, you know, because right now we look, we, we all look the same. And how, you know, how can we set ourselves apart from everyone else and survive this crisis? And it was then that we realized, okay, the companies that are hiring 
companies like ours, they're looking for a specialist. We have got to focus and be known for being the best at something. And it almost didn't matter what it was. We actually picked at the time to become the best Microsoft solution provider that we could be. So that became our focus. We completely, within a year, within 12 months, refocused everything the company did around providing Microsoft services. And, and at that point, we realized we have to go beyond custom application development. We have to do software integration. Then we realized we have to do network, networking and infrastructure as well to, to kind of service the entire Microsoft stack. Um, our hiring changed to only hiring Microsoft professionals. Our internal training changed. How we sold changed. Our messaging changed. And we became actually one of the, if not the most successful Microsoft partner ever in the history of Microsoft Partners. By the time we sold, I mean, we were at the top of that food chain. And it was all because of that, that decision we made in 2001 of how do we differentiate ourselves from everyone else in our space. That's incredible. I imagine, uh, you know, when you're start, you started this company in 93, you're going through the dot-com boom, a lot of companies are being acquired. But you weren't acquired until 2013, 2014. Yeah. You're right. A lot of companies, and we had... Um, and we had some crazy offers uh, come our way in, in the late 90s. Um, and in hindsight, I wish maybe I had take, <laughs> taken, taken one of them. Um, I don't know that we really believed that they were real offers, but there was a desperate, gra- a, a, a desperate market grab for companies like us because we had the talent that everybody was looking for. Um, like I said, we were young, inexperienced, didn't know any better. Our initial vision was one day we're going to go public. Mm-hmm. That was our grand plan. Like, well, I mean, Dell went public. We can go public too. Um, and so we we brushed all those offers aside thinking that well, we're, not, we're not ready to sell. Let's keep growing this thing and see how big we can make it. And, you know, and man, when the dot-com bust happened, we were thinking to ourselves, hmm, <laughs> maybe we should have sold this thing when the going was good. Um, and so coming out of that, recession in 2003, and then the market started coming back. A, we had found our focus. We had learned all the, the hard lessons. And that's when we decided, okay, let's have a real exit plan. We never had one before, but let's now really start a rethinking our business and focus it for an eventual exit. Uh, and my, my first, uh, and I had a very specific time frame in mind, actually. Uh, my, I had a, I had a, a family reason, uh, that, that, that happened along the way. So I, um, got married in 2001, had our first child in 2003 and our second one in 2005. And, uh, my wife and I, um, at the time, um, both of us had had an international experience at one point in our life. And we wanted to give that same thing to our kids. And so we had this plan of taking our kids out of school for a full year and living in a foreign country for a year when our kids were roughly nine, uh, eight, and 10. So we did the math. And I assumed that running a services company that I would have a three-year earnout. And so if we wanted to leave in 2013 or 14, then I had to sell my business in 2010. And so 2010 became the year that, that I wanted to sell the, the company in. Now, if you remember back then, and you were in the middle of this as well, um, as it turns out, 2010 was at the tail end of another financial crisis, right, the, that happened in 2008. And, and while by this point, we had so diversified our company 
that we actually weathered that storm really well. 2008 was not nearly an issue for us. We slowed down our growth. We didn't have a single layoff. We remained profitable both years. Um, and we came out of it, what we thought was fairly unscathed, and we thought it was the right time to sell our business. And I went through the first, my initial process of selling that company in 2010. And this actually comes to one of my big lessons learned, which it, my big lesson learned was, you know, sell your company um, or, or run your business while you're selling your company as if you weren't going to sell it. Uh, and in fact, in our case, we realized we went through the entire process, and we'll, I know we'll talk about elements of that in a bit. We went through the entire process all the way to get to the end and receive multiple offers. And those offers were so disappointing coming on the tail end of this financial crisis that everybody was looking for just bargain basement deals that I had to go back to my executive team and say, listen, this is just not worth it. Let's put a cork in this process. Um, let's just go continue running the business and we'll, we'll open this process back up. Um, frankly, after I come back from taking my family uh, overseas for for a year. And, uh, and we did. We put a cork in the process and went back to work. How did knowing you wanted to sell your business impact running your business? Yeah, two very, very different phases. So there was the, the, the young first round entrepreneur phase of the 90s where we made all the mistakes and, and didn't set up our business for, uh, for success at all, for, for an exit. And then there was the very deliberate, okay, how do we focus our business and, um, and, and prepare it for, for an exit. Uh, and there's, there are multiple dimensions uh, uh, there. Uh, at the top of the list was um, when we were growing the business as fast as we could, um, as long as we were making some money and remaining profitable, we were going as fast as we could, profits be damned. Because we were a privately held company, as long as we were above that watermark, we were doing fine. You know, as it turns out, um, most companies are going to be, most companies' valuations are going to be a multiple of EBITDA. I mean, very few companies, there are some, they're the, they're the, the unicorns, the special companies out there. Most companies are going to get a valuation that's a multiple of EBITDA. And so, one, we had to focus on, let's actually make this company really profitable. Two, growth still matters. So, growth in the business and, and timing, selling your business when you're actually on a real growth spurt. Um, is really important, uh, and, and they look at that. We looked at things that, like having been through the process, you know, once before, um, keeping really good records. Uh, we were sort of always good about that, but never really great until we got religious about it, and everything started to matter. Every contract, every document, every, uh, you know, every piece of collateral, we started organizing as if it was already going to be in a data room someday. So that all of our accounting, and we started having outside companies review our financials every year so that that was already, uh, it, you know, in the running. And so we started running and preparing every part of our business um, as if we were going to sell it. Um, for me, it also meant um, making myself irrelevant to the business. If I wasn't going to be tied down to the business forever as the founder, and most founders of small companies end up being tied down to the business that they sell for a number of years, I wanted to make sure that I wasn't a critical a cog in, in, in any part of our machine. And so it, it, it really building a, a, a real executive team that could run the company for you and letting them run the parts of, this, of the business, uh, building a process around every part of our business. 
I mean, literally every part of our business has had a documented process that we could that we could surface uh, to a would-be buyer and say, listen, we're not just making this up. Like, this is how we recruit. This is how we interview. This is how we hire. This is how we promote. This is how we reward. This is how we sell. This is how we market. And every one of that was a detailed set of processes that we had developed and learned over the years. Um, and, uh, and, and for the most part, actually automated. And so using, you know, bringing a lot of automation to our business to, to optimize these processes um, showcased really well to all the, would, the would-be buyers when they went through, um, went through the, the M&A process with us. It sounds like you prepared years in advance before you actually it, it, sold the company. It got serious about five years before we sold the company. That's incredible. Yeah. How, how did that impact the actual due diligence process when you actually went into due diligence with an acquirer? Yeah. Um, it made most aspects of the due diligence actually much, much, much easier. Again, having made that, having not made all of those investments early on when I sold Inquisit in 2007, it was a, um, it was like a, a scavenger hunt in some cases to go find you know, these old contracts, these old licenses, I mean, had all the employees signed the employee agreement? Oh, no, these people hadn't. You know, by that time, we had, we had all of our ducks lined up in a row. Uh, and it actually made running our business much more efficient. I mean, as, as we, the more we actually prepared um, for this process, it forced us to run our business in a more professional way. What additional advisors did you bring in to, to help you with this process? You mentioned accountants, but were there others, brokers, investment bankers? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Uh, let me give you my, my, my best analogy there. When I was a young entrepreneur and I went to get my first office lease, I thought to myself, I don't need to hire a commercial real estate broker because what is, how hard can that be? I'm just going to drive around. I'm going to look for, for lease signs. I'm going to contact the, the building owner myself. And I'm going to negotiate that and not have to pay that 3% commission fee. Like I'm putting myself in a negotiating advantage. Until one day I realized, and, and I actually, when I opened my first office in Houston, um, I hired a real estate broker there because I didn't have time. And the difference in that process that they ran for me was so night and day. And the deal that they negotiated for me was so much better than anything I could have ever dreamed of on my own. So that lesson learned led me to, I was absolutely going to use an investment banker uh, or a, a broker, so they, they go by both terms, to help us sell our business. And, and, and of course I was gonna have the right M&A attorney that's not the same company and the right tax advisor, also not the same firm. But the investment banker uh, can do things for you that no one else can. Most entrepreneurs, if they're lucky, sell one, maybe two, maybe three, if they're awesome entrepreneurs, th three businesses in their lifetimes. The people sitting across the table from you, they do this for lunch. This is what they do all the time. Uh, and so you're at a disadvantage. You used to be the smartest person at the, table, at the table in your business. And now suddenly, in, you know, in this M&A process, you're not the smartest person at the table. So having someone in your corner that knows more than you do is really good. Um, the investment bankers run a nice process. You don't know what that process looks like. They can help educate you on that, and they, they drive a really nice process. By definition, they're going to bring multiple buyers to the table, which is the single biggest factor you can have to increase your valuation is obviously multiple, multiple companies wanting to buy your business. Um, the investment bankers can also be the bad guy meaning they don't have to live with the deal after it's done. 
And it's a nego- everything is a negotiation, everything as part of the M&A process. And they can, they can push in, 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 in on, on issues and clauses that you might not be comfortable pushing on because at the end they can simply walk away and they don't have to live with that. And so for, uh, for all those reasons, um, any time in the future that I sell a business, we're going to lead, you know, it's always going to be driven by using an investment banker. They sound pretty important to the, to the process. How did, you, how did you find your investment banker? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, it's the same way you'd go interview any, any vendor, in my opinion. It, it is you, you look for referrals in your industry. Uh, it, it, what I have found, first of all, is these inve- over, if, you, if you're in business long enough, you're approached by investment bankers on a regular basis. And so while you might not be ready to sell your business at the time, I, I would put away their contact information. So I had a long list of would-be uh, suitors. And then, you know, through a few phone calls, started, decide, started finding out who did deals in our space and with companies of our size. And we went through a process. We went through a mini process to actually find our investment banker. And I had, you know, we had the top three uh, finalists and, 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 you know, they, they all have different terms that, that they can propose in different, different teams. And, and, and definitely you want to meet the team that's going to work with you, right? They'll, they'll always bring the senior partner in from, from New York or somewhere. And that's not who's going to work on your deal. So insist on meeting the team that's actually going to work with you in the trenches every day on your deal. Um, and you're going to be really in the trenches with them. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta trust them. You gotta get, you gotta know that they're going to have your back. Um, and then you pick one. And then, and then, by the way, when you negotiate the contract with the investment banker, um, everything there is negotiable. Their fee is negotiable. Their travel expenses, their retainer, their the, the the tail end of this deal is everything. Every aspect of that is negotiable. So that'll be your first negotiation process. Will actually be with your investment banker before they're on your team. Got it. Um, we're. Were they the only ones looking for acquirers, or were you, as an individual and as a company, also looking actively for acquirers? Right. We did. We worked on a list together. Um, there had there were a there were obviously a, a, a number. Being in, in, the industry, in the industry that we were in, there were a number of would be likely candidates that we that we knew of, and so we we worked on that list with them, and then they did their own research. The good investment investment bankers will, and they know your space already. And they'll propose usually a, a long list. Our philosophy, and there's multiple philosophies you can have there. It's the kind of the really wide, you know, shotgun approach where you send a teaser out to as many companies as you can. We didn't want that approach. We wanted a much more focused approach where we only went after the, about 40 companies, uh, a much more targeted list, maybe 30 to 40. Um, and... Uh, and and we worked that list with them, and then we let them lead that initial process. Got it. So, h- how long did it take before you got an LOI or a term sheet from one of those companies on that list? Yeah. So it went through, you know, the the process. Of course, before that is you, you know, we 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 built our memorandum, mm-hmm. and that's an important step, by the way. That's that's often relegated to the investment banker, and I really advise against that. Uh, I think the memorandum is your best opportunity of putting your best foot forward as a company. And there's going to be oftentimes when you never get to do a management presentation or to the people that, that, that are going to read it. And so, you know, while the investment banker will have, a, a, you know, definite, definitely have some ideas in terms of what needs to go into a typical memorandum, um, 
you want to draft it yourself. And you want it to make it look really professional. If that means you hire somebody to, you know, do the graphics for you and then do that. And it's always attributed in PDF format. Don't even bother printing it. They don't care. Uh, and assume that there's going to be a whole bunch of people that are going to read it that are never going to sit in on your management presentation. And so the whole process, you know, we, we, we got our first. And by the way, when you drive a process, that means you also drive a deadline. So when you start a process, you're going to communicate very clearly to the people you're dealing with when you expect, in, uh, you know, initial indications of interest, when you expect the, the final LOIs, and you're driving those dates. Otherwise, who knows? Um, and so that probably took about two to three months. Would you say that driving an M&A process is similar to driving a traditional sales process? Yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, yes, in that you have initial funnel and then you, you know, and, and you know, the first companies that are interested, you're going to, you know, they're going to sign an NDA with you. And sometimes that's a negotiation process in of itself. And then they're going to read your memorandum and a subset of those will want to hear a management presentation and a subset of those will want to hear a second one and a subset of those will, will give you an indication of interest and a subset of those will give you an LOI. So in that sense, it's, it's like a sales funnel, perhaps. Got it. So talk to me about uh, how you started getting offers. Uh, of, of the 30 or 40 companies that you were sending out you know, your, your private placement memorandum to, yep. how many of those became qualified leads, so to speak? Yeah. Um, we ended up getting five offers in our deal. And, and really, of those five, three were, were like legitimate offers, if that makes sense. And, uh, and and they were uh, very different from very different kinds of companies and, and structured very differently. And this actually goes to a, a very important point is I think a lot of uh, first-time entrepreneurs are focused on this valuation number, um, which while not unimportant, is only half of the equation. The other half of the equation is deal structure. Uh, in my case, I end up taking the the second highest offer, but that offer had a much more favorable deal structure. What do I mean by deal structure? It's, well, what does the, what does the cash portion of the offer look like? What does the earn, up, er, earn out look like? What are, what are, the, what are the, uh, all the different covenants? And what are, you know, what are the crawlback provisions? And, and what are the and, and, and? I mean, there's a million different terms to that. Not a million, usually about a dozen. Um, terms to that offer that really, really matter. And in my case, I took uh, an offer that was that was lower than the, than the highest offer. But in my case, the offer, the, the the best offer that I took was all cash, and nowhere not, which is unbelievably rare, by the way, for a service company. Um, and that's the offer I took. Now, was that advised to you by your banker or no, counsel? No, in that case, I mean, listen, it is an ongoing. They're really, they really become on, they really on your team, and mm-hmm. and so. It is you're talking to your bankers every day during this process, and so as much as I use you know as their counsel uh, at this point, we also had engaged, of course, our M and A attorney that was looking at, at at different aspects of of the deal structure, um, and so you get their input and then you make a decision. It's a very it becomes a very personal decision. You and your and your founding partners, if that's if that's your structure, or you and your board of directors, if that's your structure, or you and your and your investors, if you know, depending on how you, you know, the nature of your company. How did you try to, uh, you know, 
play the deals off of each other? Because I imagine that's kind of, that's the dream scenario is having yeah. multiple offers. What was the dy- dynamic like? Yeah. So let me repeat this one more time. The best way to increase your outcome is to have multiple buyers at the table, period. Uh, and so you, th- with the help of your investment bankers, they, you absolutely get to play one offer over the next without violating any portion of your NDA. And I say that, like you and your executive team, you really can't violate any portion of your NDA. Like you got to keep your hands completely clean. You can't tell one buyer who the other buyers are, although if they're smart, they'll know. You can't tell them what the other offer is. But frankly, your investment banker, I should probably say this on on, on this on this pod, but your investment, banker can, your investment banker can take the other party behind closed doors and say, "Listen, here's the deal. If you can, if you can make, if you can match this offer, I think the deal is yours." They can do that. You can't, but your investment banker can. What was the most challenging part of this entire process for you? <laughs> There are two phases to the M&A process. I call it the pre-LOI phase, the pre-letter of intent phase, and the post-letter of intent phase. And the pre-letter of intent phase is all wonderful. And yes, if you've done your homework and you've prepared your company for it, then, then it's actually fun and easy and you get to kind of sell your business to all these people that are really interested in buying it and, and are nothing but complimentary and, and want to go as fast as possible. Like they're really motivated to go as fast as possible. In fact, if they can get a preemptive offer on the table for you, they will. Don't take it, but they want to go fast. Everything is, is roses and unicorns. And then post LOI, where you've, after you sign an LOI, you're going to go exclusive for a period of time with one suitor. And they want to slow everything down. And that period actually was one of the most challenging periods uh, in my life. They are going to look with a microscope at every part of your business in places you never even thought they could look, in the deep, darkest places. Um, And no matter how you prepare for that, it's going to be long, long hours. It's going to be tough. And remember during this whole time, you need to keep this process quiet like other than your executive team and maybe your accounting team, you can't let anybody in the company know. I mean, that's the kiss of death. There's nothing more distracting for a company than to, than to know that you're for sale. Like that just kills productivity. And then the rumor mill and then people start leaving. Like you got to really keep a lid on this project, on this, on this process. And so you have a very small group of people that are still trying to run the business as if it, the sale wasn't going to happen. And so a lot of the work falls on the CEO and the CFO naturally. And so it's very long hours, uh, a lot of probing, a lot of, a lot of you know, groups of people calling your baby ugly. Uh, and, uh, and you just got to have the stamina because they're going to slow the process down. Um, and I remember a, a friend of mine who does M&A for a living told me this years before, and I didn't know what he meant. But he said, listen, every deal, every M&A deal dies three times. I never knew what that meant until, of course, I was in the middle of this one. And you're going to get to, you're going to, get to this point, and it's going to feel like there's an impasse, and you're going to feel like the deal is dead. And then you're going to somehow find, you know, get, get through it. And then a few weeks later, you're going to find another impasse, and you think you're not going to be able to find a compromise, and you think the deal is dead. It's going to happen again. Every big deal dies three times. And it's just tough. It just takes a toll. It sounds like the M&A process is like the hero's journey. 
It is a hero's journey. <laughs> How long was the post LOI phase? In our case, it was about four, was about four months. Four months. Got it. Yeah, the whole process was about six to seven months. And, the, and you know, two to three beforehand and four. And, and four because we really had everything lined up. Um, but it was a public company that was the suitor in our case. And, and, and so their level of, 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 of attention to detail and scrutiny was, was pretty intense. Um, and it just takes time. Uh, they sent uh, – by the way, we had none of these meetings at our office. We never had a cust- uh, one of these companies come and meet either pre-LOI or post-LOI at our offices so that nobody would see them. You know, you want people walking in in suits. So you meet at your typically your lawyer's office. They have a big conference room set up for that. Um, and when they wanted to visit our facility, we brought them, we brought them in over the weekend when nobody was there. Um, and so they'll send hordes of people uh, just to come park themselves in, in, your, in your hometown to just go through all of the documents and online, in person. It was, it was pretty intense. What were some surprises that occurred along the way? Um, surprises along the way. Again, I was surprised by how, by how deep they 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 were able to dive into, and 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 I mean, you just you you forget. I mean, you forget actually how complex your business has. You know, we'd built a business over twenty years, and you forget sometimes how complex it it, it had become. And as they as they were diving in and diving in and diving in. Um, I mean, I, I just when I thought they went they went as deep as they could go, they found they found deeper deeper layers to go into, um, and, and, and while I was prepared for that, I, I was I was shocked by how deep they could go. So the diligence process sounds very in depth. Once they very thorough, yeah. Once they were finished with due diligence and they presented you an offer, um, or they they looked at the LOI and said we want to adjust the numbers. How? How did you get from that phase to the final number? What, were, what was the process of negotiations, the yeah. back and forth? In our case, the LOI stayed unchanged. Wow. Yeah. There were, there were no, no corrections, up or down. That's incredible. Yeah. What role did your board play and your advisors play in this entire process? So I was a privately held company, and, and my board was literally myself and my two co-founders. So we didn't have, a, we didn't have an external board. So it's, that's, that's different, right? Mm-hmm. And, and in, uh, in all the other process I've seen with friends of mine, obviously their board is, is part of the process, but not an active part. You know, they're still behind the scenes. In, in, in my case, I, I didn't have to go to an external board. So my whole executive team was, knew about the process, was an active part of it. Um, all of them had uh, an upside and in, 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 an outcome in this, so they were motivated and, and very interested in the whole process. And so... Um, so in my case, I was I was able to really lean on the rest of my executive team, uh, as some might lean more on their board. Got it. Talk to me about the integration process post acquisition. What was that like? Yeah, it, it it's something to it definitely something to to plan for, um, and and I mean even the even the announcement to the whole company and then the announcement to our customers and the announcement to the to then the public, all that had to be very carefully crafted and messaged, um, and scripted to so that you know it, it, it um, so that we could get the outcome that we wanted, um, and the and the post integration phase in our case um, 
was incredibly easy for the following reason. The company that acquired us, the company that acquired Catapult Systems is a, is a public company headquartered in Beijing called ChinaSoft International. And they wanted to run Catapult Systems as a wholly owned subsidiary. They wanted to keep the brand. They didn't have a, a, a significant presence in the U.S. In fact, we ended up absorbing the presence that they had up in Seattle as part of the Catapult Systems corporate brand. And so in our case, we only had one person reporting to uh, the parent company, and that was the CEO. And they, we left every other part of the business, including oftentimes when companies get absorbed, you know, back office functions like HR and accounting and IT support often get sometimes blended in or, 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 um, or terminated. Uh, after a transition process, in our case, they were they really kept the entire organization as is, which was one of the extremely appealing parts of this one offer uh, from this company. That's part of that deal structure I was telling you about. In this case, they really wanted to keep the brand, they wanted to keep the the culture, they wanted to keep and, and they wanted to keep the company running as a separate, separately run company. And to this day, uh, we're in 2019, uh, six years after the acquisition, and and uh, they've. That continued to run just that way. That's incredible. Was this a stock or an asset sale? So in our case, we did a we did a full stock sale, um, and 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 again, you always get those questions: Do I do an asset sale, a stock sale? And and frankly, those are the questions where you want to go to your tax advisor and your M and A attorney because your goal there is to minimize your your tax obligation in this process. And you certainly don't want to put yourself into a double taxation situation. And and you're going to have guests on the show that are far more qualified than me to give you the distinctions there. But that's when you lean on your advisors to tell you, okay. And by the way, it was very clear. We knew what the structure needed to be for us. And that was part of the one of those deal structures that was very important to us. It had to be a stock sale in our case. And, and so, um, but those are questions for your advisors. Did you have any problems with minority shareholders at all? No. No. So, so tell me some of the lessons that you learned along the way. You mentioned uh, the deal structure being, being so important. I, I love that. What other lessons did you learn that you can impart? So it, for, the, for the entrepreneur founders you know, listening in, here's, here's my first lesson learned. And, and having seen this with uh, many friends of mine who sold their businesses over the years, um, when you're an entrepreneur founder running your business, you oftentimes feel like selling your business when it's just a drag on you and the economy's tough and it's just a bear to wake up every day and, the, the, you know, you feel like everything is drudgery because you're not growing and, you know, people are leaving like – when your business is at its worst is when you feel like selling your business the most. And when your business is just on fire and growing and hitting on all cylinders is when you feel like selling your business the least. But that's precisely when you should sell your business. And it feels somehow counterintuitive to the founder, like, well, now I'm doing great. I want to keep it. And now I can see where it's going. And if I just held on, if just hold on for this many more years. So my advice to my, my, my entrepreneur friends is this. Have a number. Like know what your number is, if you if and if you, and and know what that number is for you post tax. What's that number? What is that number that for this phase of your life will either set your family up forever or set you up for the next phase of your professional life, whether it's launching that next business or whatever you want to do? 
find out what that number is. It's different for everybody. And stick to that number. And if you feel you're at a place in your business where you can get that number post-tax for your pieces of, of the business, then that's when you need to sell your business. Even if it's on fire and you think that next year is going to be even better, you can sell it for 25% more. It could be that next year is 2008. And then you got to wait, in my case, five more years. So um, have a number, know what it is, stick to it, sell your business when you can hit that number. I love that. You actually answered uh, my last question that I ask every, every guest on the show, which is, when is the right time to sell? <laughs> um, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I think we've covered a lot today. Awesome. I appreciate the opportunity. Sam, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you.